Hello, everyone. So we warmly welcome you to this panel, delving into the realms of the digital as part of the 2021 Festival Ideas for the inaugural Illuminate Festival. We're holding this timely discussion on the unceded traditional lands of the Ghana people, and we'd like to acknowledge and honour their relationship to country and to pay our respects to elders, past, present, and to the emerging generation. Um, my name's Lee Robb. I'm the Curator of Contemporary Art at the Art Gallery of South Australia, and I'm really, really thrilled and excited to be joined by this trifecta of luminaries. Um, I'll try and keep the illuminate puns to a minimum, but, you know, no promises, so we'll see how we go. Um, but I'm really thrilled to be joined by Robin Fox, Tim Grushi, and Atong Atem. And it's quite a panel of formidable artists. And each of you, in your own, in your own ways, um, have created new art forms, tested the limits of technology, and also the limits of collaboration and collaborators to create experiences and extraordinary artworks that defy categorization. And you know, this isn't hyperbole. You know, they're, they're the real deal, and we're, we're going to hear all about that in a moment. But today's session is also a chance for us to preview their new Illuminate projects ahead of the launch tomorrow night. And everyone's been graced with an extra night, so the anticipation is extraordinary as we, as we, we keenly await the works to be unveiled tomorrow night. But it's, um, it's a great way to be able to, to, to look at each of these um, uh, projects um, some of them have been uh, thwarted or not been able to be seen due to COVID um, uh, situations in other cities, and in other cases, they've come out of new research um, or long-running um, long investigations. So it's a great chance to talk about the cross-wiring of the analog and the digital, the kinetic and the durational to trace light in the darkness. And we'll be discussing how either embracing or challenging digital modes of making has really influenced the research, production, and pres presentation of, um, of the artists, of, uh, of their ambitious works. So we're going to first hear from Robin, then Tim, then Atong. Um, we'll <clears throat> discuss the works, and then we'll open up to questions from, from all of you in the audience. So firstly, to introduce the artists in reverse order, um, Atong Atem. We're so pleased that Atong is able to join us from Nam in Melbourne. Uh, and it's quite incredible that we do have Atong and Robin here from Melbourne in real life. A lot of people were wondering if they were going to be here and we're all thrilled to have a real live, pan real live panel and speaking to real audience members. Um, so Atong was born in Ethiopia and, um, and has heritage in the South, in South Sudan, um, now based in Nam in Melbourne, um, but after studying in Sydney and then RMIT, first studying architecture, which I think is very interesting, uh, thinking about her extraordinary works and staging of her works before moving into photography. A lot of uh, Tong's work have been punctuated by video throughout, but Banksia, which is the new work which will uh, launch tomorrow night, an extraordinarily stunning episodic video which negotiates history, the problems of representation through beautiful tableaus of friends and community was commissioned for the Rising Festival. Um, and so, uh, as a, um, unfortunately, that wasn't able to be launched fully and publicly, so um, we're really thrilled that Atong can launch it tomorrow night um, and that it'll, it'll see its public launch on the facade of the art gallery. Thanks. <coughs> so, <clears throat> Excuse me, uh, Tim, Gru uh, Tim Grushi 
Also, um, it's great to have a local. Tim is now considered a local. Uh, he's moved here, um, based here in Tadanyaga, Adelaide, following teaching um, as a professor, distinguished professor, at the Shanghai Academy of Fine Arts. Um, but since the 1980s, Tim has been obsessed with interactive, immersive multimedia and has had really a parallel, um, you know, parallel music and video practices. Um, but this you know, interest in interactive, immersive multimedia have really um, led through or informed installations and performances in galleries, festivals, public spaces um, that have really evolved to engage interactivity and really interesting human-computer interfaces and is very interested in the multi-user experience. And so we're going to hear more about that um, from Tim in a moment. But Tim has produced a huge amount of performances, a lot in Adelaide in the early 2000s, but this is really the first time for a lot of us to be able to see Tim's work here in Adelaide. Um, and his new work, Naturis Vitibus, um, is interested in channeling the forces of nature. And, and he's projecting light and sound onto the sprawling Moreton Bay fig tree, which is right in front of us here at the um, uh, Adelaide University. So we're going to get to see that tomorrow and hear more about it, how that has come to, to be. And Robin Fox. So it's um, Robin Fox. I, I like describing you as a polymath. <laughs> I, I hope you're okay with that. <laughs> well, I can spell it, so I'll take it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll go with that. Um, Robin is... Um, a polymath based in Nam in Melbourne, and who's moved effortlessly across and between music, installation, and performance, and using his background as a composer to harness sound and increasingly powerful lasers to create optical and sonic extravaganzas which synchronize sound and visual electricity in hyper-amplified 3D space. So from works like the acclaimed Single Origin, um, which have been performed wor uh, worldwide to interactive musical sculptures and giant theremins, Robin has produced soundtracks for leading choreographers and over 25 dance works. And a few years ago, well, quite a few years ago now, um, 2016 founded MESS um, uh, in Melbourne to give everyone access to the history of electronic music instruments. And I think Robin's going to speak about that too. But on this occasion, for the work that Robin's um, made for the Illuminate Festival, he's invited by... Illuminate founders Rachel Azapardi and Lee Cumberledge to do a deep dive into the state library archives of the pioneering artist of Polish Australian, the Polish Australian artist Stanislaw Ostoja Kodkowski and his kinetic works to create a beacon or I think a series of beacons into the past. So on that note, I think we might hand over to Robin and um, to, to see how you got to, to that point and talk <laughs> through some of those, some okay. of those works. Yeah, well, thanks very much. Um, I think I've got about 10 minutes, so this is going to be kind of a rapid-fire uh, tour of how I ended up making the work that we're going to see uh, tomorrow night, thankfully. Um, but then I'll also give a nod to the, uh, you know, the, the title of the work, and I'll talk about my um, complicated relationship with both the digital and my complicated relationship with art in contemporary society in very brief and, and explosive terms so we can have a good robust debate about that at the end. Um, but so my relationship with almost everything is complicated and one of the best ways that I use to describe that is that I have a PhD in composition and I can't read music. So basically everything is complicated and doesn't make any sense. 
Um, the first photo I decided to lead with is this uh, performance of Single Origin. I think that's in Montreal a few years ago now, but um, it's a photo of me in my happy place. So I'm basically a musician. I like to perform and I like to play gigs. And so over the years, and particularly in my work with lasers, um, I've become increasingly known as that person who does laser works, but I'm much more interested in many ways uh, in sound than light. Not that I'm not interested in light, I've become increasingly fascinated with it, but um, my main love is, is sound and music. Um, and so the way that these performances, so this is a picture of single origin, and um, what happens in a nutshell in these audiovisual works that I perform is that I use the same voltage uh, to create the sound and the same voltage to create the image and basically creating what I've come to call a mechanical synesthesia. Um, I got into that probably 25 years ago or so and I come from a tradition of um, noise and experimental music and basically I'm a failed heavy metal drummer and I still just want to play stadium drums in my heart, that's what's in my heart. But the um, I was I was making I was interested. What what interested me about noise particularly actually was the fact that I found it really joyful and ecstatic, and most other people found it annoying and horrible and kind of frightening. And I was interested in that anthropologically, and I was also interested in the fact that um, I was interested in cross-modal association, and that came through, I tell this story a lot about my mother, but my mother was uh, completely synesthetic and had a cross-modal association between color, number, and pitch. And so, you know, you'd sort of burp at the dinner table and she'd tell you that that was like a B flat and a slightly off gray or something. Or every time you had a birthday, it had a corresponding number and color. And she also wrote computer music in the late 70s, early 80s on mainframe computers. And so my connection with technology is very long and deep. Um, from that point of view, but I just wanted to play drums, uh, and my connection to the audiovisual thing happened when I plugged some noise that I was making into an oscilloscope, which is a small box that measures voltage, and I'd heard that you could look at sound. I was fascinated by that idea. Um, this is a, not a new idea, it's an old idea, but I sort of plugged it in. Everything looked terrible except for these, this one tiny second where I felt like the geometry of the sound and the sound itself locked together in a way that just made my brain come alive and I thought I, I felt like I'd experienced this thing that I'd heard about, this cross-modal association that I'd heard about. And that sort of sparked, you know, decades of firstly making a lot of sound for the oscilloscope and making two-dimensional films in that way, so presenting them as films and touring them in that format. And then I missed the entire rave culture and techno culture in the 90s. I was doing other things. I can't remember what those things were, but I had never been to kind of a rave or a dance party and um, went to do a noise gig with a drummer in Melbourne at a club and I saw a little laser that shot uh, smiley faces and unicorns out of the corner of the room and I thought, oh my God, that's kind of like my oscilloscope work. I could flip this around and make it 3D. And like all artistic experiences and all, you know, everything that happens in this world, I was having all of these revelations. These were not new ideas, but they were very, very new to me and the, revolutions were, the revelations were really exciting in my mind. So I wanted to create a situation where you stood inside a simultaneous sound and light event where the voltage that you were looking at and listening to was exactly the same and I wanted everybody to experience this mechanical synesthesia. And that's how these works evolved. And what was really interesting to me was that, you know, coming from that noise background where, you know, basically the COVID audience limitations just reminded me of the early gigs I used to play when no one was there. <laughs> the, um, so that was really good training for that. But the, what I realised when I started putting this light collar with the work was that people stayed through, through a sound performance that they would otherwise probably have walked away from. 
there was something about the instantaneous satisfaction and that sort of, you know, bypassing of any critical faculty. You know, the senses are very fast, and before you could think about what you were doing, you were enjoying something you never thought you would. And so those um, works have morphed over time into, into installations. Like this was one I just did a few, um, uh, couple of months ago called Constellations. It's part of a series of constellation pieces. And um, that is this hilarious, what I love about these installations is that all you need to make it is about, you know, 60 or $72 shop crystal balls and you string them up and you can't see them in the venue at all when it's dark, but when you shoot a bolt of white laser light towards it, it just explodes into colour and it just has the most stunning sort of visceral effect. It's incredibly cheap. If anyone's looking for a cheap installation, this is, this is, yeah, this is the one. Uh, but it is still, you know, this idea that people are immersed, I guess, in sound and light phenomena. And then more recently, and um, particularly triggered by the pandemic, int interestingly, I've started doing some incredibly large-scale works which um, have only really become possible due to the technological advances that Lee alluded to, M much more powerful laser systems and um, a, you know, better control of those uh, sources. So this is a work that I did in Launceston for the Mona Foma Festival just in January. It's called Aqualuma, and it involves shooting these enormous fountains up in the Cataract Gorge and then pretty much sort of doing the same things but onto a, onto a water screen which creates this kind of beautiful large holographic effect. And I just like that photo because it looks like they're all going to be sucked into a black hole of some kind. Um, where am I? It's stuck. Oh, that's just another shot of the same work. Okay, and then last year, in the middle of the pandemic, um, I was commissioned by Brisbane Festival with an incredibly oxymoronic brief, which was to make an enormously spectacular work that covered the entire city, but that no one was allowed to gather to watch. And I was like, well, I don't really know how you do that. But uh, that actually put me in touch with, um, with a company in Sydney who did have the most powerful lasers I'd ever experienced in my life because my first meetings with the Brisbane Festival were, it's not possible, I've tried to do this before, it's not Tron, it's not what you think, like what you think is going to happen is not going to happen, it's actually quite a subtle and a beautiful thing, it's not a big bold uh, experience. Um, and then I saw these industrial cutting lasers which could be seen pretty much 30 or 40 kilometres outside of Brisbane and were just unbelievable, just, just stunning to me to see them in the air incredibly dangerous things. They have a non-ocular hazard distance of about eight kilometres, so you have to be eight kilometres away from it before it's not dangerous to the eyes. And so we were terminating it basically on, um, on mountaintops, you know, uh, 20 or 30 k's out of town. And we did get one complaint, it was my favourite complaint of all time. Apparently there was, uh, we had binoculars, very high power, we were making sure we weren't hitting anyone out there, or we thought we weren't. And um, it wasn't dangerous to the eyes, so there was no problem there. But there was someone who was sitting in their cabin in the hills, <laughs> Um, 20 or 30 k's out of Brisbane and um, their description of the experience was that they were just reading their book and suddenly everything was green, like their entire, <laughs> their entire everything went green and I just love the, the, what that must have felt like, that experience um, of, you know, if you didn't know what was happening that would have been incredibly surreal um, and I'm sort of envious that I will never feel what that person felt in that moment, although what they did experience was just rage and they wrote a very difficult email. But. Um, uh, and so, okay, so now I'm going to talk, I guess, a little bit about um, these two things, digital, the digital and uh, the society. Have, have I got two minutes or something left? Yeah, no, you're good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, you can... Yeah. Sorry, I'm speaking very quickly. I'm going to pass out. So, the, um, <laughs> so basically, like I said, my relationship with everything is, is complicated. So um, I started my 
uh, I guess my composition life in experimental music in a very digital realm. I started by learning Max MSP, a program, uh, object-oriented programming language, which allows you to like Lego-like build whatever you want, basically. And I decided back in the late 90s to just focus on one piece of software because there was this phenomena at the time, like sort of option fatigue of, you know, in particularly in digital music where a new, a new workstation would be released every month and are you going to learn that one or are you going to learn that one and, and what are you going to get familiar with? And when I found a platform where you could actually literally just make whatever you wanted from scratch, I decided to you know, launch into that. And basically, I was thin and hairless before I started that process. And then, like, years later, I emerged from it, like, fluent in the programming language, but a completely transformed person. But the, the interesting thing about making music in that way, in that very digital way, was that I loved it conceptually, but as a physical somatic process, it was, it was very difficult. And in the late 90s, there was this huge argument about whether or not the laptop could be a musical instrument. I think that argument is well over now. But um, at that time, there was real sort of debates about, you know, uh, electronic music and the performance of electronic music, and is it a valid form of expression? So I spent a long time building software interfaces to try and make the whole thing playable in this very instrumental, free jazz kind of virtuosic way. Um, but then what I realized is that virtuosity basically is a contract with an audience and so when somebody walks out on stage with a violin and they're a sort of a fleshy person and you kind of understand that and there are four strings and there's a bow and you kind of understand that's a physical system and then when somebody surpasses those expectations and does something that you didn't think was possible with that physical system they achieve virtuosity and the problem for an electronic performer or a digital performer is that you walk out on stage absolutely anything could come out of those speakers you have no contract of expectation with the audience it's a completely different form psychological Logically, and so I think that was really interesting. But my relationship with the digital is very double-edged because on the one hand, I'm a, um, I'm a sort of a, a, a utopian futurist where I sort of believe maybe there's something to the argument that there is actually nothing that is inorganic and we are all sort of marching towards a software future where you know the body is a prison and we can all be uploaded as software and isn't that going to be a wonderful utopian idea rather than a dystopian idea, something that's very different to artificial intelligence, which is very you know argued all the time at the moment. So this is a picture from a work called Diaspora, which I made for the Melbourne Festival 2018. That's a Pepper's Ghost hologram there. What I loved about doing that was using an 18th century theatre technique to create a hologram that blew everyone's mind. I thought it was really high-tech. I was like, no, this is totally not high-tech. It's a complete trick uh, of the eye. But um, so that was a setting of the first chapter of a book called Diaspora, which was um, written by... Um Oh my God, his name, Greg Egan. Greg Sorry, Egan. this just went right out of my head. So Greg Egan, amazing book. And I read it decades ago, and what struck me about it was the first chapter of that, which was, it described the birth of a digital consciousness, which is, it's very important to distinguish that, that from the birth of an artificial intelligence, because artificial intelligence is something that we can't ever know, and we will never know. And part of the process of making this piece, I actually, with my collaborator, Eki Veltheim, co-composer, we did try and write music that an artificial intelligence would write. So we did sort of hyper, try and do hypothetical pieces. And one of, the, one of my favorite ones was a, a piece of Bach. There was a Bach um, violin partita that we matched with a hoedown because structurally a Bach partita and a hoedown are almost exactly the same. And so to an artificial <laughs> intelligence that has absolutely no cultural baggage, there's no reason why they wouldn't play a bark partita and a hoedown at the same time. And when you do it, it sounds amazing, turns out. So, so that was kind of this sort of an intellectual game about artificial intelligence. But what was interesting about the uh, Greg Egan chapter was that it is about the birth of a, a the completely digital birth from a digital womb of a digital consciousness. So it's, that's much more about the idea that you could potentially replicate a human experience in software, not about an artificial intelligence, which is a mechanical 
um, construct that has its own machine learning and something that we don't understand, which is essentially not human. The idea of a digital human consciousness is something that I find really fascinating and, and could potentially you know, be a future that, is, that doesn't necessarily have to be the dystopia that we all think about. Um, so I have that on the one hand, and on the other hand, I don't believe in digital community anymore. I, th I just really believe that, that um, the digital world is actually corrosive to community, and we've, we've, you know, I know we're still in our infancy with digital culture as a, as a species, but I, I don't think it's going very well. I think the experiment's going very badly. And so, so I have this kind of very mixed relationship with, um, with the idea of the digital. That's just another shot from that work. And I also have gone full circle, and now, as Lee alluded to, I started an organisation called Melbourne Electron Electronic Sound Studio about six years ago, which brings together some phenomenal collections of electronic musical instruments, and then we just give everybody access to them. So anybody can come and play instruments. Um, the earliest one we have in the collection at the moment is the Hammond Nova Chord from 1938, which is a a beautiful, it's one of the first ever commercially available polysynths and it's got 168 valve oscillators in it and it just sounds like, it sounds a little bit like an organ until you just lean into all of those oscillators with both of your arms and then it sounds unbelievable. It's a fantastic it's instrument. It's like incredible low bass frequency. Incredible yeah. subs. But, um, and so, so in, my, in the way that I make music, I've returned completely almost to analog forms for the creation of sound and I do distinguish very clearly between the creation of the music and then the processing, all of the digital tools that I use to mix and master and do all of those things, absolutely brilliant. And you would never use analog tape to do any of that. It would be absolute nonsense. But when I'm making music, there's something very different about sculpting with voltage, getting your hands on voltage with an analog equipment as opposed to trying to make music with the, the computer mouse, which has got to be the worst musical interface ever. And like so much music is now made with the, with the, key, with the mouse. I mean, to me, that's just sad and absurd. So um, that's where I've come to on that. And in terms of art and contemporary culture, I, I've, you know, what's bothering me about that at the moment is this potential, particularly in this country, which I th where I think there's still this incredibly fractious uh, relationship that arts and culture has with the broader community. And I think that you know, in many uh, instances, we, we run the risk of creating what, what, what I refer to through a, a French sociologist, um, Bourdieu, refers to this idea of the autonomous pole, the autonomous pole of discourse, which is where the discourse around a certain thing gets so specific and so self-referential mm -hmm. that it becomes exclusive to, uh, and, it, and it shuts people out. And I really worry that in the arts, we've shut people out of the arts, and we've done that partly as a defence mechanism because we've been under siege from governments and the culture generally for a really long time, so it's a natural response, but I don't think it's a very helpful one. And so, I, I, because you, you see those autonomous poles of discourse in all sorts of areas, I went to, I went to law school straight out of school, and, and one of the reasons I left that was the kind of, that mentality that I think my contract law lecturer said to me at one point, you know, you know why we use Latin? And I said, no, and he said, well, because we charge 300 bucks an hour. So the more you have to explain, the more you, it's probably a lot more now, that was 20 years ago. But, but the thing is that, that with art and contemporary culture, I think that I've really wanted to move away recently from, the, from that kind of schism that we have between art and sport, for example, and I just think that that's such a dumb argument, and we're always talking about the, the economic rationales for the arts, which is also just a dumb argument, and, and we've, we've sort of really come so far in, our, in, our, in the way that we deal, say, with individual mental health, but we haven't come anywhere near to understanding community mental health and the mental health of culture, 
and basically creating that rich environment and making these things, and festivals like Illuminate play such an important role in this. Like, creating that rich environment is just, I mean, the science is kind of in on this. Like, it, it just makes everybody happier. It makes for a better existence. And just having that as the fundamental argument for art and contemporary culture, rather than some self-referential argument about its own grandiosity, which I think just excludes a lot of people from the process, uh, the creative process. Um, you know, it's a very, actually a very Marxist idea about realizing the human essence, I've realized. But um, that's, a, and that's a big reason why I started Melbourne uh, Electronic Sound Studio with my colleague Byron Scullin, was to create a community of access and participation uh, to the creative process and to get people, you know, to... Because my belief is that anyone can make electronic music. Anyone, techno is so easy to make. It's a simple formula. It's like, it's like making an omelette, you know? Anyone can do it. Just come down. We've got the machines. We've got the same machines Prince used, you know? Just everyone can sound like that. It's awesome. But that's, a, that's enough from me. <laughs> Thank you so much, Robin. Um, I'm really into and want to join your, your uh, utopian futurist uh, reality. Um, but, you know, I'm in such, you know, such such depth and sort of complexity in terms of you know what the the capacity of the the different mediums and modals and uh, materialities to to create sort of imaginary spaces I guess in some ways maybe you know um, departing from some of the you know some of the the realities that we're talking about to be able to actually um, you know I think Atong's put it in a really interesting way when we were talking the other day to 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 create work which is also a way to create your own culture and doing that through your work, which you've done for, you know, yeah, over, over 30 years through each of these sort of immersive experiences, um, you know, taking you outside of that reality in, in a way, um, but also, um, yeah, being able to access the same uh, synthesizers that, uh, that Prince used. So, you know, <laughs> that's, that's amazing. But um, I think there's a lot of really interesting synergies between the the pathways that um, that Tim Grushy has taken, and a lot of similar concerns as well within within your work, the relationship also to music, to composition, to you know um, to to be able to you know construct these these immersive and interactive and you know talking about user experiences in a way you're talking about sport um, and and these sort of spectacular in encounters um, which you know shouldn't be shunned um, and but they're they're creating and you know an, another way of, of us even sort of understanding our own senses and mm. that's what I feel from the experiences I've had in all of your your work separately at different times over the years that's you know that's sort of an extraordinary alternative reality to create and you know Tim I know over you know over the years you've you've spoken about you know what it means to keep evolving these interactive immersive multimedia spaces and so maybe you can tell us a bit about how you've been evolving that over the years and then bringing it into the work that, that um, we'll all get to see tomorrow night. Thank you, Lee, and thank you all for coming. And I also would like to pay my respects to country and the complicated uh, heritage and those custodians of that heritage. 
And um, yes, there's the synergies sitting here with Robin and hearing all of that, as, you're, as I'll expound shortly, are extraordinary. Whoever put this panel together, because I'm also I'm going to talk about complexity and uh, artificial life, not artificial intelligence, and I'm going to refer to a Greg Egan book as well, fortunately a different one. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, interesting. So... Um, my first slide here, I often start my stories with this because, um, you know, we were all upset. Well, the word digital gets applied universally to a whole lot of things, but in actual fact, the sort of endeavours that um, we've been involved in for many decades now both predate the, both of our practices predate the digital evolution that happened through the 80s effectively, first in sound technology and then in vision technology. And as Lee said, I've worked very extensively in both those since the mid-70s. This uh, particular portrait of me here was made in 1980 and it's completely analogue. It was an analogue video camera going through an analogue video synthesizer into an old CRT monitor made by... St the synthesizer was made by Stephen Jones and... Um, then an analog camera took the photo off the screen. So I often use this as an opener just to sort of bring that sense of historical um, history and the fact that these endeavours actually do predate digital technologies. Um, so it's just a, a touch point, I suppose, and, and, and a point that I think is very interesting um, and very crucial when we look and try and understand and read digital artworks and and the digital the very digital world we live in because in actual fact everything that is now here and is part of our lives whether it's art or you know social media and so on and so forth all of these things have long histories and developments and 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 an inability to understand that i think makes it very difficult for us as a society to then be able to have a position of understanding and 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 being able to perhaps move forward in a positive way and and perhaps as often as artists, one sort of is trying to subvert the dominant paradigm of how these technologies get uh, pushed into society, whether it was the industrial military complex when I started, now it's more the big giant, you know, global business. But nonetheless, uh, you know, that to me, what is an essential part of my practice is trying to sort of utilise these things in other ways. So I'm going to talk about two works, because if I start trying to talk about my um, practice, we'll be here all day. Um, now, this is a work that was supposed to open tonight, but will now open tomorrow night, uh, called Natura Vitibus, Nature Forces, talking of Latin. And it's part of a series of my works that have been going on for about, about 15 years now, perhaps a bit longer, which pertain to nature. And conceptually, what I'm particularly interested in, or, or the through line of it, has been the idea of taking um, the, making the invisible visible. And everything, well, not everything, but a lot of what happens within nature is in different, might be in a microscopic, it might be over, you know, a mountain, the time frame for a mountain goes over multiple millennia and so on and so forth. So all of these things, um, playing, playing with in different works, playing with that in different ways. Now, I also thought it might be interesting to just touch on different sort of approaches to practice as an artist working with new media at this point in, you know, in the 21st century, um, in that it... it, it all art practice, I think, is difficult. Um, 
but this, a work like this, so the two works I'm going to talk about are two antithetical approaches. This work is a commission by Illuminate, and so I've had a lot of time to think about it, and I was asked to do a projection work on one of the big Wharton Bay fig trees outside. So this is not the work, this is a pre-visualisation of the work. So one of the things you have to do in working in this space is you actually have to be able to create a pre-visualisation of the work, both to assure the commissioners that you're heading in the right direction and they're happy with where you're going, but also to then, you know, pragmatically create marketing material for them to use. And these, these are sort of dynamics that, you know, one can't avoid. And then you go on to make the work and then a work like this is entirely site-specific. So even though I've been working on this for six months, I, um, I only saw the work for the first time two nights ago and then, of course, last night it was raining, so we didn't get to see it. And this work will only exist for the Illuminate Festival, and then that'll be it. So it's, a, it's an interesting... And, and part of me really enjoys the temporality of that and making a work, as a lot of mine have been, that only exists for that time. But then also there's a, you know, the practical side of me and the bank balance goes, oh, I wish I could, you know, pull that work out again. But in the end, you can't. So I'm just going to run... So again, this is not the work, um, but this is the pre-visual of the work, because at the moment there is, other than a couple of quick snaps I took the other day, there is no actual documentation of the work. Um, that'll happen next week. So this is, and it's interesting having seen it the other night, that first and foremost it's a complex undertaking that I've challenged myself with, which is to create a three a 360 3D mapped video onto this tree. So there are three projectors coming from 120 degrees each so that I can cover the entire tree so that wherever you're looking at it, you, you're seeing some imagery and, and that it's all uh, geometrically cohesive. Um, and fortunately, I, once I got it all up and running, it worked. So I was quite relieved at that point. Um, the reality, of course, though, is when you're projecting on a tree, it's very different to working in a studio on a flat screen. Um, so it actually doesn't look quite like this at all. So part of the challenge for me is to actually think about, to design something and try and visualise how it's actually going to look. And fortunately, again, I'm very pleased with the outcomes. If I had my time again, of course, as always, you know, with all particularly digital work, it's so easy to keep changing it and there's a real danger in that. Um, one other thing I will just say about this work is, oops, pointing it the wrong direction, there we go, um, I've utilised AI, so this is an image of the tree, so two small segments of the work, I've worked with the Google Deep Dreaming AI and I've taken an image of the tree, well I've had to do it three times because everything has had to be done three times for the three different points of views of the projectors and then remarried. Um, so this is an image of the tree that's been fed into the uh, Google Deep Dreaming AI and, and, and I call this a collaboration really because one doesn't tell the AI what to do, it, you can influence it and then it goes in a certain direction and then you can decide whether or not you know, you're happy to work with that. So that's Natura Vitibus, should be opening tomorrow night and runs every night for the entirety of the festival, all being well. Now the other work I wanted to talk about was a work called Storm, whoops, just jumped a slide there. 
Um, now, this is based on a Greg Egan book. <laughs> uh, in this case, it's... And Greg Egan is an Australian science fiction author and amateur mathematician out of Perth who's been writing very... Uh, prescient and thought-provoking books, particularly about artificial life, since the, I first came across him perhaps in the late 80s. This book was called uh, Permutation City, was uh, published in 1984, and in it he explores uh, many concepts, including quantum ontology through the various philosophical aspects of artificial life and simulated realities. And in the end, it's actually more dystopic um, in terms of where the story goes. But it intrigued me, and I come from a medical... In, 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 I come from a medical family. So um, in the book, it's this idea that science uh, will resolve the human body at higher and higher resolutions until eventually it gets down to an atomic and then a subatomic quantum level and that through this there is the possibility that then very wealthy people will make models of themselves which they will be able to um, transpose into an artificial life and again as Robin said we're talking about artificial life as very distinctly separate to artificial intelligence and in this instance it's the idea of a post-corporeal human artificial life and that of course it'll be the uber wealthy people and it put, puts forward this idea in the book and what I was particularly interested in so this work is called STORM it's an acronym uh, stochastic translator of resonant morphology so the idea that I can um, monitor the subtle energies and vibrations in people subtle and demonstrative uh, 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 quite a large dynamic range in fact if I'm being successful and um, and, I can, and using just a simple camera and microphone, but using it to derive uh, information about the energy that the person or persons in front of the screen are giving to the work. I'll just run a very short video again, and, and then from that, random things happen. And what I'm interested in is this idea that, you know, I can create a very complex, dynamic range of outcomes from this. So it's not just about uh, the immediacy of what the interactor in front of the screen does. I can actually add that up. If there are five people in front of the screen, I can uh, create an algorithm that uh, sums the energy the amount of energy, the amount of movement, the amount of vocalisation that they might bring to it, but also paying some attention to the uh, ambient sonic environment around. So I can combine all of these things into outcomes. So these works uh, are never the same twice, even though they, you know, there are certain similarities. Now, from a... Um, whoop. Come on, baby. Um, now, what's interesting in a work like this is this is not a commissioned work. This is a work that I've actually been working on and iterating for nearly 10 years now. I've called this one version two. And in that time, so it's a work that's totally come from my own motivation, but it's perhaps also been one of my most successful works over the last seven or eight years. It's been shown all around the world. It's been purchased. It's, it's um, easily able to be reconfigured so it can work on a single flat screen vertically or horizontally it can go into big LED screens like this it can be used by a single person it can be used by multiple people it's become uh, very versatile and and in so it's so completely opposite in terms of my practice to natura vitibus and and I just love that and I thought it was interesting to sort of show this work um, as a counterpoint to Natura Vitibus. And this work will actually be appearing
appearing in Illuminate as part of a one-night performance that I'm giving on the 29th Thursday at the Lab in Light Square. The performance is called Alethic, or Alethic One, in actual fact, as it'll be an ongoing thing. And in that, I'm using a lot of, um, you know, very much parallel interests and thoughts and ideas to Robin about interfaces to performance and what, you know, and that, I loved what you just talked about, the virtuosic performance, because, you know, and I had that moment where I was privileged to be working with some classical musicians and here was me working away on synths and they're working on a 400-year-old playing, a 400-year-old violin that they play for their whole career. And, and I realised that I had to really rethink what I was doing. So not only did I start as you did, honing back on the numbers of softwares that I got involved in. But I also started working extensively, because I'd been working under conductors, um, often performing live visual components, some of them here at the Adelaide Festival, um, with orchestras. Um, so I started to... Um, actually think a lot about what composers do. So I've been making virtual instruments that allow me to use my hands in very complex, sophisticated ways, not just the movement and attitude and where my hands is, but also gestural and so on and so forth. And then over a period of time, hopefully get better at it. You know, I don't think I'll ever reach virtuoso in that sense. And I, I do take that point of yours in terms of audience's expectation and what that very thing is. So anyway, so I'll be bringing all of this to bear on the night of the 29th in a solo performance. Uh, well, I, there was supposed to be a dancer, but sadly the lockouts has just precluded her. She's stuck in Melbourne, so she won't be able to be a part of that. But this work will be one component of that, and then I'll be using my virtual instruments and all sorts of other things. So um, for me, it's a very um, privilege to be here in front of a physical audience, and again, I thank you for being here, but it's also a real privilege that events like Illuminate create possibilities for artists, not, not just in these difficult times, but also for artists like us who don't fit comfortably in the art world as many people imagine it, the, you know, the white space, the putting things in rooms or on walls and so on and so forth. So these festivals provide a very important avenue for allowing uh, artist possibilities, but also for exposing audiences. And, and I love public art. I love creating pieces that people just come upon rather than necessarily have to go to a destination. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. I guess that relationship to composing and to choreography and I guess even into dramaturgy or set design or the sort of the staging, the relationship between liveness and, um, uh, and, and site specificity is also something that's, you know, that's at, at stake with your, your, you know, both of your works. You've talked about um, what it, the difference between performing live and, you know, experiencing your works live in these one-off 
um, one-off performances or experiences versus these long, you know, long builds or, you know, decades of, of research that get channeled into, you know, being able to, to make a work like this or to be able to keep evolving a work like this. So, you know, very different sort of temporalities at, 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 um, at stake in terms of the way that you're harnessing or, or using different technologies or the need to shift from one to another depending on its duration, its, its publicness um, or the, the intimacy versus the sort of shared collective experience of something. And, um, you know, I think going from uh, Natura Vitavis, your incredible work with... There's a lot of lightning and storms in there, and I wonder what you've been channeling, Tim, because... <laughs> oh, <I'm not> responsible. <laughs> but it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a nice segue into Atong Atem's new work, Banksia, which, you know, can't wait for everyone to, to see tomorrow. Uh, from tomorrow night, it'll be on the facade on an enormous uh, screen on the front of the facade of the Art Gallery of South Australia and yeah Atong you've spoken really beautifully about um, you know the relationship of your work as a as a photographer um, to you know to a sort of ever-evolving self-portraiture through your work but also um, that each work in a way um, is part of a universe of ideas and um, yeah I thought it would be really interesting to, to talk about how you came to, to make um, Banksia as your, your sort of longer, I guess, quite a sophisticated, involved eight-minute video work, but with five very discrete episodic um, uh, elements and, um, you know, the difference between, you know, the photographs and the series that it's come from. But also, you know, there's a, there's a sci-fi connection between all of you as well. And, yeah, it, it might not be Greg Egan, but um, uh, Octavia Butler has a, has a lot to answer for in your work as well. So, yes. yeah, yeah, so into, into other worlds, but thanks for Tom. Thank you, and yeah, I'm very overwhelmed to be in a room with people as a person from Melbourne. It's like, oh, <laughs> it feels really naughty. <laughs> but I appreciate everybody being here. Um, and it's also just really brilliant for me um, as an artist who works predominantly uh, from a place of looking at history and maybe racial politics and gender politics and that sort of stuff to be on a panel where that's not the focus of what we're talking about. That's maybe, like, the first time, actually. <laughs> like, I am a nerd. Please, can I talk about that? <laughs> so I'll maybe start with, um, uh, I have this video as an example of some works that I've done in the past to sort of lead into the new work Banksia. Um, I thought it'd be a more interesting way to show my body of work rather than just flipping through photos because I predominantly do photography. But last year I had the amazing opportunity to work with Mozilla Hubs to create an online virtual gallery space, you know, this um, whilst we were in, in lockdown um, because Photo Festival launched in 2020 and it was really difficult to make people see art when we couldn't leave our own homes. Um, but it was an incredible opportunity to realise some of the ideas behind, you know, my choice to use digital photography as opposed to any other medium. Um, and my interest in maybe that history and ways that it's been you know, subverted throughout time. Most of my photographic work comes from my interest in um, colonial histories and the way that colonialism has been documented and the way that histories are controlled, I suppose, by those who have power. Um, so I became really interested in, uh, like, I guess, colonial studio photography, um, ethnographic photography specifically. And 
the way that people who maybe had that used as a tool against them, you know, inverted that relationship between the photographer and the subject um, to create studio photographs in the late, 19, uh, late 20th century, or mid, early 20th, I'm very good at math, I swear, um, <laughs> in, the, in the 20th centuries when it kind of became a huge thing, um, specifically looking at studio photography from around the 50s across West Africa, and that sort of influenced the work that I do, and then as someone who grew up being influenced by science fiction, I became really interested in ways to present studio photography or photography in general through a, a lens that is really personal to me. Um, essentially, my thinking when I'm taking photographs is every choice is a decision by the photographer in terms of framing, in terms of subject, and in terms of pre presenting or presenting a subject, and why stop at um, choices that kind of make sense within our current reality. You know, I can choose the skin tone, I can choose a lot of stuff, especially with digital manipulation and, you know, Photoshop and all these tools that are often taken for granted, um, which is why I make works like this. Um, so Banksia is a work that I did with reference to this particular work that you're looking at on the ground, which is a, um, a scan of a, of a scan of a scan. Um, so I, I picked flowers around my neighbourhood during the lockdown and scanned them and created these works from them. Uh, and in doing that, I sort of created a relationship to my, my surroundings and became really interested in creating a relationship between my thinking and the space that I exist in, um, which is where Banksia came about. Um, I had done a series of works for the Immigration Museum for Photo Festival, which are the ones that are shown in this, in this um, really fun video. And in doing a body of work in the Immigration Museum, I became really interested in the history of that museum and the history of migration in this country, especially as a migrant. Um, and from there, I sort of discovered the history of African migration to Australia and the reality of um, the fact of a lot of people, it's kind of disputed the exact number, some historians say 100, some 300, but a lot of African and African-American people migrated to or came to Australia with the first fleet and around that time. So Banksia was um, my interrogation of maybe the way that that history has been or has not been presented, um, and also maybe unpacking uh, assumptions that I even have about uh, migration and about relationships to the Crown and you know, British colonialism and that sort of thing. And it kind of aesthetically came from a place, um, this is sort of the end of it, those are supposed to be my glasses. It would be more relevant if I was wearing my love for heart glasses, but I'm not today. Um, so this is, these are some works that I made in 2016, which were digital collages um, from essentially um, being an art school student and having a lot of interest in Edward Said's Orientalism and that sort of specific lens of looking at um, art history. Uh, I made these works years ago to sort of create my own relationship to, to European art history or that sort of lens of who's, who's centred in the frame, who's an accessory um, and the sort of European fantasy of the other, which is a lot of what Edward Said talks about in Orientalism. So these works were sort of the aesthetic prelude to Banksia. Um, this idea of using these fabrics to mask the central figure, the central sort of European figure of, of the paintings, so that we're allowed to focus on the other figures and their relationship to that central figure. And you know, what does that mean about 
history. What are, what are, these, what are these artists trying to say, I wonder? Um, and I, I wanted to use these wax print fabrics as the, the masking material because I found it really interesting, the history of them. So I grew up with an understanding of, of these textiles as uniquely African and they were a big part of my personal and cultural identity. Um, and then I opened some books and learned some things over time and learned that they are actually Dutch fabrics. And you know, when the Dutch colonized Indonesia, they came across the, the batik tradition of making fabrics using wax to you know, create these really amazing elaborate patterns. And you know, I guess colonialism was primarily an economic thing. So the idea to benefit profit, I guess, from colonialism meant that that was an opportunity. Um, and so they took these fabrics from Indonesia to parts of West Africa and were like, hey, would you like to buy these? Um, and I guess it's interesting the way that over time that history has kind of been diluted and these fabrics are kind of, you know, emblematic of Af Africanness, um, which is very ironic and interesting. But I grew up with that understanding, so I wanted to sort of, I guess, in a lot of ways, by masking with these fabrics, I'm, I'm creating an extremely European image, really. Um, but this was this particular image was one of the foundational uh, aesthetic images that I used in thinking about Banksia, thinking about European history, thinking about my my draw to this aesthetic that maybe excludes me and my culture and my heritage intentionally, but I, I'm still drawn to it because it's what I was brought up with. And I wanted to make Banksia as a work that sits within that liminal space. I think a lot of my identities and a lot of my interests exist within the lim liminal space. Um, and I think like digital art is often sort of its own little liminal space as well. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm gonna sort of wrap up so that I can show you a little bit of Banksia. Um, and I guess we'll have like a chance to dive into it a little bit later. So let me point the right way.
Sorry. <laughs> Congratulations, it's such, it's such an extraordinary work and um, can't wait for everyone to be able to get a chance to, to see it tomorrow um, all the way through and in situ. I've realised that because it's been such a wealth of incredible complexity of ideas <laughs> through the history of representation to you know, critiques of colonialism through to um, concepts of a digital consciousness, um, I imagine there's a lot of very varied questions and we've only got 10 minutes um, for those. So I think um, if, if that's all right with you guys, we might just open up, because I know you're also keen to get real questions from real people in real time. So, uh, so if, um, I think, so, um, excellent. So, yeah, if um, you can see um, where the microphone is in the crowd. So if there are any questions, I know it's quite daunting because you do have to <laughs> walk up to the mic, but um, if you have any questions, that's the best way to, um, to, to ask them of, of the artists. Um, hi, thanks everyone. Um, that was great. And I'm, um, I know I'm in the right place when we're talking about Octavia Butler and Greg Egan. <laughs> That's fabulous. And I just actually want to do a shout out for Greg Egan's work on gender. <laughs> it's very interesting. <laughs> um, you know, he, he talked about neutrality in like five, five genders really early in the piece, which is really interesting in his books, Distress and... Uh, diaspora. Anyway, the question I was wanting is, I started off when Robin was sitting here talking about analogue sound and the, you know, sitting in front of this amazing looking organ um, in a room that's sort of vaguely religious and then um, going on to nature and connecting with nature and immersive and then, you know, collect, connecting with the or repopulating um, the sort of tableaus of, of European art. And I'm just thinking about you all as ministers or ministering, you know, to a new sort of aesthetic, aesthetic, aesthetic sort of immersion um, to a community in an age where why don't, someone was talking about art and sport, why don't we see this, you know, art and religion or art and spirituality or art and as a new thing. Anyway, that was just a, is that a question? I'm not sure. I'll, I'll take that as a comment. Oh, well. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but did you have any questions specifically for any of the artists? Well, would they take that on as, a, as ministering, you know? prophesizing, giving people different experiences. I could talk to that just, <laughs> I could talk to that from two perspectives. Prophesizing, you know, I think the relationship between literature as a, and what's happening in the world as we've, you know, and the connections we've all just expanded is very um, real for me. And there was a fascinating article, lengthy article in this week's week, Guardian Weekly about the Cassandra project where they're actually studying in Germany a project where they've been studying literature to prophesize um, wars and all sorts of things. I won't go into the full details. But um, so I think, you know, from a, you know, in terms of um, work that 
is a portend of things to come or pertains to where we're at. I, I do believe this to be the case. And as to art as reverence, well, you know, I, there's been a lot of talk and conversation about that and I would like to think, and when I think I did engage in the rave culture that you managed to avoid, I got sucked right in there. And, you know, and for me, these were reverential moments, not for me as an artist, but for the people that were there experiencing that. And I think now... Um, in all sorts of forms of uh, fully immersive, interactive, and I'm not talking, you know, I'm talking about multi-user interactivity, which one can interpret in many ways. I do think these are important moments for people in the world today. But just in 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 the same way that you know the church, the, 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 were, the, 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 the church and the cathedral, absolutely. Been, and, but you know, I think yeah, we all, the museum, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I think you know, religion yeah. has lost its power potency in the world, you know, some time ago, to my mind. And I think even notions of uh, historical museums, gallery culture, and even these things have been questioned a lot at the moment. So I, yeah, I, you know, these are important conversations that need to be ongoing. But Yes, is the short answer. <laughs> Thank you. Great. Thanks, Diana. Uh, Tim, did you select the tree or were you told that this would be the tree that you would illuminate or did you, have you wandered all across no, North Terrace I, and elsewhere? I was asked to work with this that tree. This one particular yeah. tree. Thank you, Susan. How interesting. But, but, you know, that in itself is... Um, you know, an interesting challenge, and it's a great tree, I have to say. So. <laughs> I'm going to look at it very differently from now on. <laughs> well, I just wondered, um, as we're as we're coming coming close to the end of time, or just for this session. <laughs> the end of time. Wow. <laughs> no, you know, well, it, it's gone into some really interesting ontological areas, so you know, anything could happen. Um, but I just wondered if if any of you had questions for each other of um, of of you know of of your work or things that have you know sort of come up in in um, in you know walking through some of your your new projects. I was interested in the idea. Well, I have one. So, <laughs> I was interested in the, the, you know, the idea of um, reenactment in in some ways, um, and thinking about the work that 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 um, Robin's about to launch tomorrow um, of um, Ostoya Kotkovsky, thinking about your um, atong, your your you know reenactment of the Odalisque painting, um, and you know how that is a provocation to sort of reimagine and you know re recreate alternative realities with with your work and the sort of the power of that or or what's at stake in 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 a sort of reenactment in a way eyes on me, I guess I'll <laughs> answer it as quickly as I can. Um, I guess in, in, in my thinking, my relationship to making work, I suppose, digitally or just making work in general is, um, I guess I have a reverence for things that have come before me and there's, there's sort of like a, almost a, a, a cyclical relationship to history, a cyclical relationship to, you know, the natural cycles of life and it feels instinctive to to continue that, which is why I struggle to see my works as individual bodies of work. They all kind of feel connected in some in some way. Um, so I guess that sort of reenactment is almost like a cellular instinct. And in a lot of ways, I think we're constantly reenacting or reinterpreting something at all times, regardless of how you know fresh it all is. And I, I find it also really fascinating that um, a lot of our people in general, our relationship to, to digitalness and the digital space is this idea that is almost limited by what we think is possible within reality. Um, so, yeah, I'm really intrigued 
about or intrigued with like you know the things that exist outside the borders of you know our imagination and I, I've spoke to you as well about colonialism to me lacks imagination there's so many the modes that it. yeah mm. there, there are just so many systems in, in in the world that we exist with that aren't imaginative um and I love the idea of I guess to go back to the topic of of this talk the digital realm being a, a space outside of you know our actual collective imagination um yeah, like recreating within those unlimited limitations or something. But I'm not a utopian. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you all so much for you know, such you know, in incredible contributions and for sharing the work and for making the work and for making the invisible visible. Um, thank you, everyone. Thank you for being such a wonderful audience and um, enjoy the festival. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.